Let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection, the same Christ our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, I'd like to welcome you to the second to the last talk in our Lenten lecture series, Architects of Modernity, The Construction of Our Modern Day Babel. It is my pleasure to introduce to you tonight Dr. Kenneth Kemp. He is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of St. Thomas. After receiving his bachelor's of arts in Russian languages at Georgetown University. He went on to complete three master degrees in Slavic linguistics at the University of Texas, Austin, in liberal education at St. John's College, Annapolis, and history and philosophy of science at Notre Dame before receiving his PhD in philosophy also from the University of Notre Dame. He has authored uh, a book called The War That Never Was, Evolution and Christian Theology. Is it still in print? Yes. And uh, we also have articles that he authored, including Science, Theology, and Monogenesis, as well as Scientific Method and Appeal to Supernatural Agency, The Virtue of Faith in Theology, Natural Science and Philosophy, and then also Religion and the Science Classroom. He's also translated into English the Archbishop of Lublin, Josef Jaczynski, his book on God and Evolution. And with no further ado, Darwinism and the Question of Origins by Dr. Kenneth Kemp. Okay, well, is this working okay? Yeah. Okay. Tonight's topic is Darwinism. I'm a philosopher, and any of you know, uh, any of you have had any experience, any exposure to philosophy, will know where I'll begin, namely with definitions, right? So, what is Darwinism? What's modernity? And what could one mean by the present-day babble? So, first, what's Darwinism? I'll define Darwinism as a composite of four theses. Three provide a general account of the origin of biological species. The fourth extends the account to the origin of the human race. The first thesis, transformism, says that biological species, other than one or a few first species, originated by descent with modification from already existing species. The best way to understand why Darwin thought that transformism is true begins not with biology, but with historical geology. Not with the work of any biologist at all, but rather with the work of surveyor and canal builder William Smith. By 1799, Smith had noticed, as he dug his canals, the different strata of the Earth had distinct fossil content. Those strata had long been recognized as corresponding to succeeding epochs in the history of the Earth, an idea that had been proposed by Blessed Neil Stenson in 1669. The obvious conclusion from what Smith observed was that in successive periods in the history of the planet, the Earth was inhabited by different species of living things. 
This idea of faunal succession is not part of or an inference from Darwin's theory. It's rather a combina combination of generalized observation and inference from Steno's principle of superposition, stated up at the top there. At the time when an upper stratum was formed, the lower stratum had already become solid. At the time when the lower stratum was being formed, none of the upper strata existed. It's, uh, it is something that evolutionary biology was later deployed to explain. It was accepted in the early 19th century by the leading French geologist, the anti-evolutionist Georges Cuvier, who had come to a similar conclusion on the basis of work he had done in the Paris Basin, no less than by Smith, who advanced no theory at all about the cause of the succession. It raises, however, in its turn a further question. What's the origin of the species which are found in higher geological strata but not in the lower strata? Species, that is, to, that to all appearances existed in the later periods of the Earth's history, but not in the earlier ones. That's one of the questions that Darwin had set out to answer when he returned from the Beagle Voyage in 1837. It's the geological context that underlies the title of his work. Where did these new species come from? That was the mystery of mysteries. The idea of a transformation of one species into another was already in the air. Darwin's grandfather Erasmus had given it the idea of a poetic exposition, or given the idea a poetic exposition in his Zoonomia in 1794. French biologist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck had given it a more scientific treatment by 1800. In 1831, Belgian geologist Jean-Baptiste Domalio Dalois one of the pioneers of Catholic evolutionism wrote in his Elements of, of Geology, the idea of a series of new creations is a purely gratuitous hypothesis not based on any analogy with phenomena which take place in historical times. It seems that one should not resort to such an hypothesis. Namely, there was one fauna here, and then it got destroyed, and God created a new one, and so on. Uh, it seems that one should not resort to such hypotheses except when it's absolutely impossible to explain the facts in any other way, which is not at all true in this case. His alternative was that the living beings of today came by way of reproduction from those of, of ancient times. Further support for a transformist solution came in 1855 when Alfred Russell Wallace published a short article arguing for what's come to be called the Sarawak Law. So that's the third item there. Every species has come into existence coincident both in space and in time with a pre-existing closely allied species. That's done. Recognition that the succession of fauna was a succession of similar fauna was also a generalization of observation. The next step, the idea that the successors not only came after the earlier fauna but came from it, was an inference to the best explanation of those observations. The thesis that such transformations occurred constitutes the first component of the theory of biological evolution published by Wallace and Darwin in 1858. To this, Darwin added two more theses, one specifying the pattern of, of the history of life and the other the cause of the transformation. So Darwin's phylogenetic pattern is inherently branching rather than the fundamentally linear pattern that Lamarck's earlier thesis had offered. It's not quite linear because 
pure linear just doesn't work out, but he tried to keep it very linear, whereas the emphasis on Darwin is on the branching. Darwin said, I cannot doubt that the theory of descent with modification embraces all the members of the same class, so mammals, birds. I believe that animals have descended from at most only four or five progenitors and plants from an equal or lesser number. Analogy would lead me one step further, namely to the belief that all animals and plants have descended from some one prototype. This common ancestry thesis, Darwin argued in The Origin of Species, explained a wide array of facts, not only in paleontology, as noted above, but also in biogeography. Finches on the Galapagos Islands, generally similar to those of the nearby Ecuadorian coast and different in detail from island to island. In comparative morphology, where the structural similarity of functionally different diverse limbs and tetrapods, ranging from horse to bird. And in embryology, the explanatory range of the common ancestry thesis, especially in its less comprehensively monophyletic versions, wanted a fairly quick acceptance in the scientific world. What caused the modifications that differentiate species? Darwin's third thesis was that the modifications were caused chiefly by what he called natural selection. Animals in nature, no less than in the barnyards and dovecotes of England's breeders, vary from one individual to another within a species in ways that are related to the reproductive prospects and thereby change the mix of traits that characterize the next generation. Just as a pigeon fanciers can produce strikingly varied types of pigeons, by artificial selection, selecting for breeding only those with the most pleasing traits, nature, that is the variation in the conditions of life, can produce striking morphological variations in finches, mammals, or animals by confining reproduction to those with traits necessary to survival in the environment in which the species lives, and by not denying it to those who lack those traits. This, he argued, can produce not only new varieties of pigeons, but new species of squirrels, new orders of mammals, and plausibly, new classes of vertebrates. Natural, the natural selection thesis is logically independent of the common ancestry thesis. The process existence is a, as a modifier of species is a logical consequence of uncontroversial observed facts. Even contemporary anti-evolutionists acknowledge its power to adapt species to their environment, for example, the cause of development of drug-resistant strains in bacteria. Darwin, however, made a stronger claim that natural selection, given sufficient time, could effect morphological modifications so striking as to constitute the transformation of one species into another for that matter, one order into another. That is, not just a proto-squirrel species into flying squirrels, ground squirrels, and tree squirrels, but a proto-mammal into squirrels and whales. That one species was sometimes transformed into another was Darwin's first thesis. That it was primarily natural selection and not some other mechanism that did this was the third. The natural selection thesis had a harder fight than did the common ancestry thesis, held back partly by the mistaken theories of inheritance still prevalent in the late 19th century, and partly by the existence of superficially plausible rival mechanisms of evolutionary change. The natural selection thesis won general acceptance only on its synthesis with Mendelian genetics in the 1930s. That's what usually now has the name neo-Darwinism. 
We need to look also, however, at a fourth of Darwin's theses, namely that man must be included with other organic beings in any general conclusion respecting his manner of appearance on this earth. The idea that man was descended from animals was not original with Darwin. It had been defended by uh, Darwin's two leading evolutionist predecessors, by Lamarck in his uh, zoological philosophy in 1809, and by Robert Chambers in his Vestiges of the Natural History of Creation in 1844. It's not so much a component of the evolutionary theory of the origin of plant and animal species found in the origin as it is an extension of it, and one that presupposes a thesis that is as much philosophical as scientifically, namely that man differs from other animals only in degree, not in kind. Uh, then there you get the idea of the, the spectrum. Large gaps between the fish and the ape, large gaps between the genius Isaac Newton and some primitive person <laughs> off someplace, uh, and smaller gap between ape and primitive man. So if you're going to think that the evolution covers the big space and just big space here, it's not a surprise that it covers the small space. That was, that's his argument anyway. Uh, Man differs from other animals only in degree, not in kind. <clears throat> Denial of human exceptionalism would make an evolutionary explanation of man's origin no more problematic than was the explanation of the origin of any other species. Darwin realized that in order to defend this thesis, what he needed to do was to attend to both bodily structures and mental faculties. In the former, he was successful, and I'll say no more about it here. Less convincing is his claim that all of man's mental and moral powers are the result of a gradual modification of powers already found in animals. He did, to be sure, offer good arguments for some general continuity and perceptual and emotional faculties, not least in the book he published on the expression of emotions in man and animals in 1872. But a refutation of human exceptionalism requires more than that, a point to which I'll return later. For now, let me just add that Darwin did seem to suspect that a purely evolutionary account of the human mind would create problems. In an 1881 letter, Darwin wrote, with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all, or, or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust the convictions of a monkey's mind, if there are any convictions in such a mind? The comment was triggered by Darwin's acknowledgment of his inward conviction that the world was not the result of chance. But it's hard to see how that horror doubt, if it were sound, would not be equally subversive of scientific reasoning itself. So that's my brief answer to what is Darwinism. Now, what's uh, modernity? I've thought a lot about Darwin and his ideas, and thus found it fairly easy to specify just what the term Darwinism should mean. I've not given the same amount of thought to the concept of modernity, but I suspect that it cannot be reduced to a precise and coherent list of components. I'll resist the traditionalist temptation to use the uh, term modern the way too many of our contemporaries use the term medieval as a kind of omnium gatherum of deplorabilia, and we'll use the term modernity merely to refer to a loose conglomerate of ideas that are characteristic of the modern era, and that can be used to distinguish it from previous eras. I'll discuss four such ideas, ones which have some connection to, to Darwinism, or at least claim some. Two are sound, two I think are mistaken. The first of the four, 
is a scientific account of how natural processes formed the major features of the natural world. What I'll call the paleoetiological sciences, sciences of old causes. Physics, chemistry, and much of biology offer us only a descriptive and explanatory account. That's right. Okay. Uh, 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 only a descriptive and explanatory account of how the world works, its structures and the laws of its everyday operation. So think of mechanics, thermal and electrodynamics, chemical atomism and physiology. They just tell us how the world works. In 1637, however, Rene Descartes asked, what would happen in a new world if God were now to create somewhere in imaginary space enough matter to put together, or to put one together, to put a new world together, and if he moved the various parts of this matter about without any order in such a way as to form a bit of chaos as confused as the poets can imagine, and if he afterwards did nothing else but to lend nature his ordinary support, leaving it to act according to the laws which he had established. He went on to suggest that the greater part of the matter of this chaos would, following these laws, necessarily organize itself in such a way as to make it resemble our heavens. Some of its parts would form an Earth, some planets and comets, some others, a sun and fixed stars. There would be nothing in our world which would not, or at least could not, appear in the same way in the world which I was describing. In these passages, he suggested that discoverable natural processes might explain not just how the world works, its operation, but how it came to have the structure that it has, its formation. Much later, Belgian priest cosmologist Georges Lemaitre, who was one of the central figures in the development of the theory of the Big Bang, characterized the goal of paleoetiological research as follows. Cosmogonic theories, his name for the same kind of thing, propose to seek out initial conditions which are ideally simple from which the present world in all its complexity might have resulted through the natural interplay of known forces. Descartes took some preliminary steps toward implementing the program with uh, respect to both the heavens and the earth in parts three and four of his Principles of Philosophy in 1644. But the first permanent contribution to these <coughs> sciences came later in the century in Blessed Neil Stenson's Geology, which I already mentioned, followed in the 18th century by Pierre Simon Laplace and Immanuel Kant on the origin of the solar system, in the 19th by Darwin on the origin of biological species, and then in the 20th by uh, Father Lemaitre on the origin of the large-scale structure of the universe. The idea of such a science did lead some thinkers to attempt to reduce the history of the natural world to a cosmical process, one and continuous from nebula to man, star to soul, atom to society. Materialist versions of that kind of theory were proposed in, by English philosopher Herbert Spencer, German biologist Ernst Haeckel in the 19th century. A spiritualist version was proposed by Jesuit geologist Pierre, Pierre de Chardin in the 20th. There is, however, I say, no such single process. What scientific research has given us is rather a series of distinct but connectable theories. It's something like the ones I just mentioned, about the natural formation of various components of the natural world. Darwin's contribution to the emergence of paleoetiological sciences reinforced 
a new and so modern idea in theology. So if the paleo-ideological sciences are the first modern idea, here comes the, uh, the, the, the second. The, this new idea, uh, uh, sorry, I want to begin differently. Understanding the first chapter of Genesis has always been difficult. A.J. Moss wrote in the Catholic Encyclopedia in 1910 that all interpreters begin by feeling a need of explaining the hexameron, the six days of Genesis, and all end by differing from all other interpreters. Three points about the history of the interpretation are of particular relevance here. First, the fathers of the church varied on whether the six days are literally days. Augustine attempted to reconcile the first two chapters of Genesis with, uh, with each other and with his reading of a passage in, in, in Sirach. He thought that there were, they were one day represented in a sevenfold aspect. And uh, so many patristic and medieval theologians, for want of any reason to think otherwise, thought that they were literally distinct days. Second, also in support of that reconciliation, Augustine suggested that God embedded into the world, he created what are called, it's usually left in Latin because it's hard to think of a good neat English word for it, rationes seminales seminal reason, something like that. Seed-like potencies whose gradual actualization caused the adornment of the world to change over time. An evolution of fauna, though not an evolutionary transformation of one species into another. Third, the interpretation of the hexaemeron must be guided by our scientific knowledge of the, of the nature of created things. St. Augustine, in his literal interpretation of Genesis, said that one should not imagine water acting contrary to its nature when interpreting the biblical passage about the firmament in the midst of the waters. He warned against using the testimony of Holy Scripture against people who engage in learned discussions about the weights of the elements. St. Thomas abstracted from Augustine's instance that the, the, from the instance about the water, the principle that in the initial arrangement of nature, we must look not for anything miraculous, but for what the nature of things ordains. Could that principle be extended from the structure of the world to its formation or to the chronological sequence of its adornment? In his Summa Theologiae, late 16th century Jesuit theologian Francisco Suarez said in a discussion of the problem of evil, one should not have recourse to the first cause when an effect can be reduced to secondary causes. That's Suarez. Now I ask, could the formation of the world, planets and mountains, and its adornment, flora and fauna, itself be the product of the powers which God had implanted in the natural world, which he created? Genesis did not say that the earth that the earth brought forth the green, or Gen sorry, Genesis did say that the earth brought forth the green herbs, the fruit trees, and the beasts of the earth. But no apposite natural process being known, the idea of a reduction to secondary causes long remained dormant. The rise of the paleoetiological sciences made such an idea plausible for the first time. After early success in establishing historical geology, uh, Lamarck's and Chambers' early 19th century attempts to offer a natural account of the origin of species faced scientific problems that outweighed their benefits. One alternative to their ideas 
I'm sorry. One alternative was to their ideas was successive creation, the kind I just described. But de Maulieu emphasized the theological objections that can be raised against any supernatural version of such an idea. I find it hard to believe that the, that the omnipotent being, which I consider to be the author of nature, has at different epochs caused all living things to perish in order to give himself the pleasure of creating new beings, which on the basis of the same general plans present successive differences tending to arrive at the present forms and sometimes reproducing the rudiments of organs that were useful to earlier beings but which have no use to the later ones. And he added, it seems to me much more probable and more in conformity with the eminent wisdom of the creator to admit that just as he had given living, just as he has given living beings the power of reproduction, so he has also endowed them with the property of modifying themselves according to circumstances, a phenomenon of which nature still gives examples. This, of course, was a key part of, of Darwinism. In 1921, Belgian priest geologist Henri de Dorladon called this presumption of natural causality Christian naturalism. And he defined it as the tendency to, de to attribute to the natural action of secondary causes all that is not excluded therefrom, either by reason or by the positive data of the observational sciences, and they have recourse to a special divine intervention distinct from God's general governing activity only if it's absolutely necessary to do so. Although anti-evolutionists continue to object that the idea of God's use of secondary causes in the formational economy of the world puts too much distance between him and creation, even Darwin was able to see that, as he put it in the last lines of The Origin of Species, there's a grandeur in this view of life with its several powers having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one. The comparative poverty of the special and independent creation or formation of individual species and the manifestation of divine skill present in the evolutionary world was also articulated by two early 20th century Catholic evolutionists. In 1903, German Jesuit Ludwig von Hammerstein, imagining a billiard ball, or sorry, imagining a billiard player, wishing to send 100 balls in particular directions asked which will require the greater skill, to make 100 strokes and send each ball separately to its goal, or by hitting one ball to send all the 99 others in the direction which he has in view. Jesuit entomologist Eric Vossmann added at about the same time, uh, God's power and wisdom are shown forth much more clearly by bringing about these extremely various morphological and biological conditions through the natural causes of phylogenetic evolution than they would be by uh, direct creation of the various systematic species. The church emerged from its reflection on Darwin's first three theses with a greater appreciation of divine ingenuity of God's use of the causal efficacy of created things in the formational economy of the world. Causal efficacy, St. Thomas had pointed out long ago, is a power that God grants to created things not out of necessity but out of his goodness. This Christian naturalism, this Christian naturalism argues, is not an alternative to the doctrine of divine providence. It's an account of how divine providence works. The locus of the first 
a modern idea, paleoetiological sciences is scientific thought. The locus of the second, Christian naturalism, is theology. In my opinion, both of these contributions were sound. Two other modern ideas that have gained some currency in the wake of the emergence of Darwinism and that claim to have Darwinian foundations are, by contrast, I say, mistaken. One, grounded in Darwin's fourth thesis, has fully, uh, that is his fully evolutionary anthropogenesis, is the idea that science requires us to reject any kind of anthropocentrism. This is sometimes called the dethronement of man. The Catholic Church has always taught that however much God might love butterflies and even slugs, and I'm going to quote from the Catechism because that's just me about the slugs. Uh, the Catechism says man occupies a unique place in creation. Indeed, God created everything for man. For him, the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all the rest of creation exist. That's the catechism. Building on an idea first articulated by the prominent 19th century German physiologist Emil de Watermond in, in an address to the Berlin Academy of Sciences, Sigmund Freud said, humanity in the course of time has had to endure from the hands of science two great outrages against its naive self-love. The first was when humanity discovered that our Earth was not the center of the universe, but only a tiny speck in a world system hardly conceivable in its magnitude. This is associated in our minds with the name of Copernicus. The second occurred when biological research robbed man of his apparent superiority under special creation and rebuked him with his descent from the animal kingdom and its ineradicable animal nature. This reevaluation was accomplished under the influence of Charles Darwin, Wallace, and their predecessors. Freud went on to say that the third and most irritating insult is flung at human, uh, the human mania of greatness by present-day psychological research. But since Professor Grant has already addressed Freud in a separate lecture, I'll say no more about him tonight. Perhaps the rejection of anthropocentrism is a component a thesis of modernity. But Dumas and Freud's intellectual history is as, an, is as an historical matter false. Their analysis of the first of the outrages against man's naive self-love, an account which uh, Dennis Danielson, a contemporary historian, has called the great Copernican cliche, begins with an uncritical equation of geocentrism with anthropocentrism. The earlier idea, however, was that the center of the universe was a distinctly inferior position. Those who attended last year's lecture series will recall whom, whom Dante places the locational center of the center of the universe. Right? Not us, but Satan. Johannes Kepler wrote of the heliocentric placement of the Earth that we who inhabit the Earth can feel proud of the preeminent lodging place of our bodies. The idea of heliocentrism as dethronement, which seems to have appeared only after about 1650, Daniel suggested, and I'm quoting him here, functions as a self-congratulatory story that materialist modernism recites to itself as a means of displacing its own hubris onto what it likes to call the Dark Ages. That's Danielson. It is with the phrase outrage against man's naive self-love that the dethronement metaphor breaks down in the case of, of Copernicanism. Self-love didn't place us at the, 
sorry, the, the, the <coughs> Copernicans didn't see the center as the proper place, as the medievals didn't, as the, or as a privileged place. So it's with the phrase outrage against man's self-love that the dethronement metaphor breaks down in the case of Copernicanism. In the case of Darwinism, British Congregational Minister and one-time Oxford tutor Robert F. Horton uh, does report a reaction that can perhaps be construed as a response to an imagined outrage against humanity's self-love. In 1893, he wrote that the church swarms with people who take up the cry of the timid and decorous spinster who, on hearing an exposition of the Darwinian theory that men are descended from apes, said, let's hope it's not true, or if it is, let's hush it up. In that, in the case of Darwinism, however, the problem is rather with the phrase from the hands of science. Darwin's first three theses are good science. The fourth, as I said above, is not purely scientific, and the philosophical supplement that it needs is not even good philosophy. Man is really different from, indeed, higher than other animals. The exceptionalist refutation of the Darwinian uh, of the Darwinian, of Darwinian anthropology must begin by identifying what it is that man has and that animals lack on the basis of which a difference in kind can be asserted. There are two answers, one behavioral, the other structural. The behavioral answer is that we can infer from observation and the intuition of our personal mental states that man has two powers that are completely absent in animals. The first power is conceptual as opposed to merely perceptual thought. The ability not merely to distinguish triangles from squares or to recognize boxes, traps, and eagles, but to distinguish heliagons from myriagons, thousand-sided figures from 10,000-sided figures. You can't imagine them, construe an image of one as opposed to the other, but you have no trouble understanding uh, the difference conceptually. Or we can conceptualize carnivores, logical dilemmas, and even the multidimensional vector spaces of quantum mechanics. Well, Wallace, impressed though he was by the power of natural selection to reshape plants and animals in response to environmental pressures, Riley pointed out that certain intellectual acts of human beings, for example, the development of higher mathematics, were simply beyond the reach of that process, beyond the reach of natural selection. St. Thomas argued that they were also beyond the power of any purely material being. The second feature of human behavior is free will. The idea that some human actions are free, free from determination by antecedent states of our brain and our circumstances, free even from determination by our character, and can be the result of deliberate choice is in one sense a more radical challenge to 19th century determinism than is quantum indeterminacy. That kind of freedom is not the kind of power that a purely material being can possess. The Christian version of the structuralist account of, the, of human exceptionalism is that man, unlike animals, has an immaterial and immortal soul. Thomistic philosophy and Catholic doctrine connects these two accounts by asserting, by asserting that it is the human soul that makes both conceptual thought and free action possible. It's also what underlies human immortality. We can ignore the details of the connection here. What's already been said is enough to show that Darwin's fourth thesis is false. His theory may be able to explain the origin of the human body, but it cannot explain the origin of the human being. Despite his fourth thesis, however, Darwin himself did not see his work as a dethronement of man. 
In one of the last paragraphs of the origin, he contented himself with the remark that light will be shown, will be thrown on the origin of man and his history. What light? In the final paragraph of the Descent of Man, he wrote, man may be excused for feeling some pride at having risen, though not through his own exertions, to the very summit of the organic scale. And the fact of his having thus risen, instead of having been aboriginally placed there, may give him hopes for a still higher destiny in the distant future. That was Darwin. Catholic evolutionists, of course, have also denied it, offering, I think, a somewhat uh, different and better well, for surely different, and I think better response to the deflationary evolutionism. Filippo de Filippi, one of the leading Italian naturalists of his day, and another of the pioneers of Catholic evolutionism, wrote, and this is 1864, uh, in the appendix to a lecture on man and the apes, to think that the origin of man is perhaps less divine when the biblical clod of earth turns out to be the entire organic world is a strange way of understanding human dignity. English Catholic biologist St. George Mivart, another of the pioneers of Catholic evolutionism, showed how a Catholic could accept one half of Darwin's fourth thesis while rejecting the other. Scripture says, this is him, uh, that God made man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is a plain and direct statement that man's body was evolved from pre-existing material, symbolized by the term dust of the earth, and was therefore formed by the operation of secondary laws. The soul of every individual man is absolutely created, that is produced by a direct or supernatural act, and of course, by such an act, the soul of the first man was similarly created. Theferino Cardinal Gonzalez, who uh, played a major role in the Thomistic revival of the 19th century, uh, 19th century Spain, pointed out that Mivert's hypothesis could be juxtaposed with a possibility noted by St. Thomas that the causes or agents other than God might have intervened in the formation of Adam's body, that is to say, in its preliminary preparation up to an imperfect stage of development reserving the final stages of its preparation to receive a rational soul, to reserving the final stages to divine action. In this way, the essence of Mirror's hypothesis is preserved with due regard to the direct and immediate action of God in the formation of the body of the first man, action which traditional biblical exegesis seems to require. Either view would leave unlogical even if not locational anthropocentrism intact. A fourth idea that might be considered an element of modernity is a rejection of the doctrine of divine providence. Underlying Darwin's emphasis on selection as the paramount power in the production of species was the idea that the variation which constituted the groundwork underlying selection was in some sense the product of chance. No shadow of reason can be assigned for the belief that variations which have been the groundwork through natural selection of the formation of the most perfectly adapted animals in the world, man included, were intentionally and specially guided. However much we may wish it, we can hardly follow Professor Asa Gray in his belief that variation had been, has been led along certain beneficial lines. Without that, he went on to say that plus 
that, plas that plasticity of organization which leads to many injurious deviations of structure, as well as a redundant power of reproduction which inevitably leads to a struggle for existence and as a consequence to natural selection or survival of the fittest, must appear to us superfluous laws of nature. He did not take the place of chance in the universe beyond that denial, choosing not to address the idea that an omniscient creator must have foreseen every consequence which results from the laws imposed by him, even if he did not, even if, that, if God did not order them. Addressing questions in the theology of nature would, Darwin said, be traveling beyond his proper province. I've already mentioned Darwin's acknowledgment of an inward conviction that the world was not the result of chance. In correspondence with Asa Gray, he acknowledged an inclination to look at everything as resulting from design laws with the details, whether good or bad, left to the working out of what we may call chance, but acknowledged that his thoughts on the subject were not well developed. Nevertheless, some modern scientists have claimed that Darwinism should lead us to radically anti-providentialist conclusions. Nobel laureate Jacques Monod, for example, in his Chance and Necessity, published in 1971, wrote, it necessarily follows that the, the chance alone is at the source of every innovation and of all creation in the biosphere. Pure chance, absolutely free but blind, uh, at the very root of the stupendous, and edifice, stupendous edifice of evolution. And in the final paragraph of the book, he said, man knows at last that he is alone in the universe in the universe's unfeeling immensity, out of which he emerged only by chance. His destiny is nowhere spelled out, nor is his duty. Now, some early Catholic evolutionists were particularly attracted to alternative scientific views, according to which evolutionary change was a result of some progressive principle internal to, implanted in the biological organisms rather than chance, that is. But, but proponents of that view were never, never able to develop the idea in a scientifically plausible way. More recently, some Christians have argued that natural selection could, could not produce the complex structures and processes found in living things, and have argued that such complexity must be the product of intelligent design, directly introduced into organisms over the course of their phylogenetic history. In my judgment, they underestimate what natural selection can do. But to argue that in detail would be a topic of its own. So here, I just want to make three points. First, one can hold that the universe was intelligently designed, a product of divine providence, without also thinking that direct design and action was necessary to the emergence of biological complexity. Second. The idea of the kind of direct divine action in the formational economy of the world posited by intelligent design theory is, I think, in tension with the most plausible theology of nature, namely Christian naturalism. The appeal of Christian naturalism with respect to the origin of species was expressed by French Dominican uh, Dalmau Leroy, who wrote in 1887, the genesis of the organic world through the intermediation of natural agents requires infinitely more ingenuity than does direct creation. Between a watchmaker who makes a precision watch and an inventor who creates a machine capable of itself producing the same watch, I have no hesitation. The inventor seems to me 100 yards above the watchmaker. Third, uh, the role which Darwinism gives to chance is entirely compatible with the doctrine of divine providence. 
Indeed, in his Summa Contra Gentile, St. Thomas Aquinas explicitly argues that providence not only does not exclude, but actually requires the presence of chance in the world. We can, though, make a stronger claim uh, since random processes can be deliberately chosen in order to serve larger ends. An analogy should make this clear. The Knights of Columbus used random processes of bingo nights. Why? Because they wanted to provide enjoyment for the parishioners and raise money for the charity. So these random processes to achieve an end that they've set for themselves. This can be applied to the history of life on Earth. Perhaps God designed the world in such a way that random processes keep living things well adapted to their environments when it, to their environment when it changes, as well as giving them the features necessary to live in adjacent environments to which they were at first not well adapted. Could God count on the, a fauna produced by natural selection to in, uh, including the, could God count on uh, a fauna produced by natural selection to include uh, a biological foundation for the kind of rational being that it was his intention to create, create in the sense of creating a soul and which uh, which would be infused into the body? Perhaps so. Cambridge evolutionary biologist Simon Conway Morris recently wrote that there seemed to be a good reason to believe that if, if, if we had not emerged, then rest assured that a viviparous, warm-blooded, vocalizing, and intelligent species would have done so. His claim is still scientifically controversial, but the defense of the compatibility of providentialism with a role given to chance by Darwin doesn't depend exclusively on Morris' claim being true. So, third, uh, Darwinism in the present-day Babel. What is a present-day Babel? <laughs> Since the term's a metaphor, not a concept or a thesis name, we shouldn't try to define, try to specify a definition. Let's uh, look at the biblical text. Let us go down and there confound their tongue that they may not understand one another's speech. Then the name thereof was called Babel because there the language of the whole earth was confounded. Cardinal Gothalis, whom I mentioned earlier, concluded a cha the chapter on Darwinism in his philosophy textbook, the philosophy textbook he wrote in 1881 by saying this, we must not let ourselves be seduced by the Garola Palabria. Can I put Babel for that? We can talk about this if people's Spanish is good afterwards. It's, it's proximate. Uh, the Garo de Palabria of human science. But neither may we deny it its legitimate rights nor limit its horizons on the pretext of biblical interpretations or religious ideas which are far from being dogmas. Such garrulous verbiage, to do a more precise translation, is surely easy to find. And I think the Gonzalez warning is nicely balanced. But here I want to take the word babble in a somewhat more biblical sense and ask whether there's a there is precisely some confusion that can be attributed to Darwinism. What comes closest to being a case in which people do not one understand one another's speech is, I think, discussion over the relation between evolution and creation. To show this, I'll begin with a not so well-known line from perhaps the most famous article of one of the 20th century's leading geneticist, Theodosius Dobzhansky, uh, in his article, Nothing in Biology Makes Sense Except in the Light of Evolution, published in American Biology Teacher in 1973. He wrote, I am a creationist and an evolutionist. That may be paradoxical, but it's not contradictory. 
After all, as Dobzhansky also said, it's wrong to hold creation and evolution as mutually exclusive alternatives. To eliminate the air of paradox, I say, we need to pay careful attention to both words, creation and evolution. Darwin used the term creation nearly 100 times in the first edition of his Origin of Species. Usually, he just used the term as a synonym of origin. When he said that each species had a single center of creation, he just meant that each originates in a single geographic location. When he contrasted his theory uh, of evolution to the theory of independent creation of various species, the emphasis was on the word independent, not on the word creation. In neither case does he have particularly in mind the theological concept of creation. Nevertheless, a contrast between evolutionism and creationism quickly became common among Catholic evolutionists, no, long, no less than among others. Notre Dame educator, priest, and popularizer of Catholic evolutionism, John Somm, uh, wrote, for example, 1896, that between the two theories, that of creation and that of evolution, the lines are drawn tautly, and one or the other theory must be accepted by all who make any pretensions uh, intelligently to discuss the subject. No compromise, no via media is possible. We must need either be creationists or evolutionists. We can't be both. He was, again, a Catholic evolutionist. I think he's using the words in a way that uh, are not very helpful, and I'll say why. So this is, because this usage is no less common today. Better would be like Domjansky to use the term creationist for everyone who accepts the doctrine of, of creation, which some did, being a Catholic priest. What is that theological doctrine? Creation, to cite two widely used scholastic phrases, is the production of something in regard of its whole substance or, in other words, from its own non-being and not from any pre-existing thing. I'll put it in Latin there so you can see that it's good Catholic theology. Uh, <laughs> so those who ask, did God create plants and animals, or did they evolve, have whether either or formulated the question badly. The term creation has two senses, as ably pointed out by, by Mever. In the strictest and highest sense, Creation is the absolute origin of anything by God without pre-existing means or material and is a supernatural act. That points back to the passages I just had up there. In that sense, God created the material world as a whole and the angels and creates each individual human soul. But he did not create, in that sense, plant or animal species or even the first human body. About the first two, the Bible says that the earth brought them forth, and about the third, that it was formed of the slime of the earth. That's a Douay translation. I think we've got a kind of a softer version. No, maybe it's just dust. Uh, anyway, uh, still, they too were, in a second sense, in a second sense, created. The secondary and lower sense, in the secondary and lower sense, creation is the formation of anything by God derivatively. That is, the pre-existing matter had been created with the potential to evolve from it under suitable conditions, all the various forms it subsequently assumes. This is a natural action that God in the physical world is distinguished from his direct, or as it may be here called, supernatural action. 
Remember, it went on to say, the conflict has risen through misunderstanding. Some have supposed that by creation was necessarily meant either primary, that is absolute creation, or at least some supernatural action. And they've therefore opposed the dogma of creation in the imagined interest of physical science. Others have supposed that by evolution was necessarily meant a denial of divine action, a negation of the providence of God. And they have therefore combated the theory of evolution in the imagined interest of of religion. The theory of evolution is nothing more than an account of how one material thing is transformed into another. It presupposes, but offers, but itself offers no account of how it is in the material world of which that thing is a part exists at all. It might, as far as the theory is concerned, always have existed, or it might have been created, or it might have come into existence in some other way. The focus on distinguishing absolute and derivative creation, however, misses one important aspect of the idea that a product of evolution is still a created thing. To say that God created the world or anything in it is also to say that the world or thing depends on God for its very existence. We can, I'm going to conclude with a little dramatic reading. So I solicit a volunteer to read a passage with me from, uh, from Lewis Carroll. So this uh, Alice meets Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Tweedledee says, the king's dreaming now. What do you think he's dreaming about? Nobody can guess that. Why, about you. And if he left off dreaming about you, where do you suppose you'd be? Where I am now, of course. Not you. You'd be nowhere. Well, you're only a sort of a thing in his dream. If that there king was to wake up, you'd go out, bang, just like a candle. <laughs> so uh, that's how it is with God and creatures. We can emphasize this by saying that God conserves his creatures in being. But that's only a different way of conceiving what St. Thomas thought was one and the same divine action as uh, the same divine action as creation. The neglect of these important points about the concept of creation has led to many conversations in which the interlocutors do not understand one another's speech. It leads to babble. So, uh, well, I wrote another page of conclusion, but I think maybe it's more efficient just to put it up there and let you focus on the whatever parts you want to look at more, more most, most closely. I'm a little hard of, of hearing, um, and I have a, a microphone here that um, sends a signal to my, my hearing aid. So if you just uh, speak into the microphone, and the father will carry it up, then maybe I'll hear the question a little bit better. So again, for the Q&A, uh, clarification questions first. The way we'll be choosing is supernatural selection. So, uh, but you're gonna, I'm gonna have to, you're gonna have to wait till I come to you. And if you would still, for the recording, repeat the question. Yeah. Okay. Excuse me, I want to make sure, I'm sorry, I've got, look, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. <clears throat> I want to make sure that I understand uh, what I think is a very central issue here, and that is what is Christian explanation of evolution and creation, and let me state what I think you said, okay, okay and, and please okay. correct me, um, that that at the beginning, um, 
God created the universe mm -hmm. and created all of the laws. You might. Sorry. I'm fine. You want me to talk into a big mic? Yeah. Two mics. Two mics. Okay. I hope we don't get feedback. Um, thanks, Barry. I'll give you so, the feedback. So, Chris, oh, Christian creation. I'm sorry. So, my, my, I'm trying to understand Christian creation. And I believe what you said was that at the beginning, in the beginning, God created the components of the universe and all of the laws which those creations would follow. And it was that combination of both of those which has allowed natural processes which Darwin and many others view as being uh, subsequent to the creation of those laws, uh, purely random, but resulting in the tremendous order which exists now in the universe, which did not exist since none of, none of these species existed, the planets didn't exist, nothing existed at the beginning. That, but, but God created both the universe and all of the laws that got physical, chemical, biological, whatever kind of scientific laws you want to talk about at that time, which has resulted in eventually human beings. Is that Christian creation? Mostly. I think I only Wait. thing I had a Sorry, to repeat the question briefly. Uh, so the question is, what is uh, uh, the essence of a Christian doctrine of, of creation? Uh, or sorry, of Christian doctrine of evolution. Evolution. Uh, so, I mean, to, to take the bigger picture with, in which evolution is embedded, your first one is what? God created the universe that is created matter out of nothing. Let's leave the angels aside, just talk about that. So God created material world. Now, in, well, created what? I mean, in the material world. Well, created on the Christian evolutionist account, creates a world with, uh, that will, where the things in it will act under laws that will develop into the kind of thing that he, he, he wanted. I got a qualification on that, but I'll come back to that. So, so I only the question of chance is, I mean, it's, it's maybe chance, but in the same sense that the, the, um, that the Knights of Columbus use it. We go to the head knight and say, is this a game of chance? Which is not the way we run it. <laughs> you might go to another bingo parlor. You might say, chance is supposed to be the way. Why? Because that will achieve their ends. So chance can achieve, achieve their ends. So uh, apparently, uh, 
there's a role of, of, of chance in, in, uh, in the development of the, of the created world. Now, I said there's a qualification here because this only explains uh, the material side of the world. And if you look around the room, you see a lot of beings that don't merely have a material component. We all are all kind of a mixed being. And so the evolution only gets as far as the material foundation. But, but Darwin didn't. Darwin did not address the spiritual nature of human beings. Yeah, no, Darwin. Darwin isn't. Uh, look, I mean, Darwin's a, a scientist. He obviously thinks about things in the way that anybody does. But he he says himself, he's not too clear what to say about about those things. And so he uh, he focuses on the the question of. The finches on the Galapagos Islands. Eventually, he gets to the question of the human body and human, well, human being in a fuller sense. They are, I think he goes too far and I, for the reasons that I said. So that's what, uh, I mean, what I take Christian or Catholic evolutionism to, to be. I'd just like to add that God is a hell of a lot smarter than anybody on this planet. God is much smarter than anybody on this planet. Oh, I agree with that. created those laws. Yeah, well, I, I agree with that. That was the point I was trying to, I mean, some of these uh, characters were trying to emphasize when they said that, you know, the, to be the cause of causes is greater than to be the cause of the effect. And, and uh, that it brings into, I mean, as I said, Darwin, he says he's not, clear what he wants to say about, about these things. He's, he lost his, his faith, basically, and, uh, but would never became really hostile to uh, the church in the way that, that uh, Freud and, and Nietzsche seemed to be. So you're a generous man. Yeah. Uh, Thank okay. you so much for your lecture. Um, I had uh, a question regarding meta metaphysics. Okay. How does the um, metaphysical principle uh, non dabo quod non habet. You cannot give what you do not have fit into a theistic uh, Christian uh, evolution of truth. I'm losing a little bit of a connection. Can you say the last part again? I... Sorry. Uh, how, is that, how does that metaphysical principle fit into the Christian theistic uh, evolution origin? That you articulate. Um, yeah, this is, was long discussed by by uh, Catholics confronting uh, this question, and there were various uh, partially successful, at least partially successful answers. For I mean, one is that uh, that. Repeat the question. Oh, sorry. The question is what? How does how does uh, uh, how can one square the theory of of evolution with the idea that a being can't give what it doesn't have, and so that you get from a from a lower form to a higher form. If the higher form has powers that the lower form doesn't have, power into that. Where did that that come from? Uh, well, two things. I mean, first, of course, we need to set human beings aside here because the human powers that animals don't have don't come from, well, that's where they do come, and that's what's important. They come from God because God creates a soul and infuses it into each, each individual. So, so the human powers that are different from animal powers come from uh, 
uh, come from God. Now, how about how about uh, the the uh, evolution of animal species? Uh, well, there are different ways that it was approached. One was that maybe that what you really have is animality, and that the, so that uh, whatever the sense of higher or lower, they're not higher or lower in a way that raises a metaphysical problem. Uh, others. Uh, argued that, that since the, the theory has such great explanatory power that it must be true. And if there's a tension with uh, the idea that no being can give to its offspring what it doesn't have, that, um, well, we just have to keep puzzling over it. We should keep in mind, of course, that this is not entirely a, a new problem. In the, the Middle Ages, there was a, a widespread belief in the spontaneous generation of living, of certain kinds of living things, worms and stuff like that emerging out of rotting material. So it was, it's been a, a, a problem that has puzzled uh, philosophers and people interested in the uh, in the, the solution, but it's not a new problem. That is, if if the medievals could live with spontaneous generation, which turns out to be false, but they thought it was true and could live with it, then it can't be an insuperable objection that uh, Thomas has to 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 evolution. But it is a it is a puzzle, even if you get partway over by saying, well, maybe there's just animality as to the question of uh, plants and animals, and then the question of, of the origin of life, which is not, of course, part of Darwin's theory of evolution. This is a theory of how living things evolved from one kind to another, not how living things came from non-living matter, about which he has had no answer. I wish I'd give a stronger answer, but that's the kind of thing that... I, I have to correct your history. It wasn't in the Middle Ages when people stopped believing that. Louis Pasteur no. in the 1850s proved that you cannot generate yeah. life from inorganic matter. What I, what I said... 1850. Yeah, I, I that's not the Middle Ages. I wasn't... I, all I, what I said was people did believe it in the Middle Ages. And the reason that was important is because believed. they were seriously committed to domestic philosophy. That the fact that, that over the 17th and 18th century, it went back and forth between Spallanzani and Brady and so on, uh, doesn't affect my point, which was that, that Thomas in the Middle Ages thought that was possible, and therefore it shouldn't be counted as an insuperable domestic objection. <coughs> St. Thomas Aquinas, right, not other Thomas. Right? I think every time I said St. Thomas, I meant St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> okay, sorry. I doubt it would have been anyone else. <laughs> Any other questions? Over here. Thank you. So, you talked about this a little bit at the end of your talk. But clearly there are a lot of people still today who are under the impression that the theory of evolution somehow debunked Christian teaching, right? Or, or rendered it irrelevant or something. Um, it's wrong, right? We can, we can reconcile uh, Catholic teaching with everything natural science has discovered. But do you think it would be fair to say that Darwin sort of put the church or put Christians on their back foot a little bit for a while, um, in part because 
there's a kind of disappointment that comes with getting an explanation for especially life that seems compatible with a purely materialist philosophy, right? So before Darwin, maybe if people were inclined, you know, there were a few atheists saying that wasn't unheard of, but if you said you didn't believe in God for a normal person, then it seems like the natural response would have been, well, walk outside, trees, squirrels, birds flying through the sky, where did that stuff come from, right? And the natural answer was God. And it seems like part of what happened with Darwin was, Oh, we have another explanation now. We don't need God to explain where trees and birds and squirrels came from, right? Um, so there's a kind of disappointment maybe that goes along with that, this sense that there was this obvious card you could play to bring people towards belief in God that maybe got taken out of the church's hand or something like that. Maybe, maybe that's not fair. But, but it, I'm curious whether you think that's broadly right, and if it is, could you could you say if there's any particular writer or do you, who you think or you know thinker who you think has given a particularly effective response to that sense, right? Like what what should you say in response to people who feel that disappointment? Well, it's I mean two things. I mean first, Darwin doesn't explain the origin of, of life, only of individual species, or you might say of the diversification of, of species. Uh, might there be uh, natural, I'd rather say natural materialist account of the original life? There might be, but we don't have it yet. Um, now, so what about, what about the, 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 the birds and so Well, I mean, what sense does, does Darwin explain those? Well, why are there so many different species of finches on the Galapagos Island? Why are there a quarter of a million different species of, of beetles in the world, for heaven's sakes? Why are there so many? Well, Darwin explains that. Why is there something rather than nothing he doesn't explain that. The whole series of, of, of uh, theories that I, I, I strung out doesn't explain that. And so, I mean, all that shows is that maybe somebody had taken the, the uh, wonder that the natural world evokes a little too superficially if they think that, that in explaining the why there are a quarter of a million kinds of beetles, we don't need to worry about, wonder about God anymore because it doesn't explain the existence of things. It doesn't explain the, the deeper laws or the order in the, in the universe. So, uh, I mean, this, this idea that, it, that it's all in the details of, well, in details of adaptation, that was a theme that, that uh, developed in the 18th uh, century in particular. The arguments in the Middle Ages, the arguments from Aquinas are not, they're not like that and they're not affected by the, uh, by the question that Descartes put and the answer that he and Stenson and others, others gave. So. Thank you, Wendell. I would just add, um, in regards to did, you know, did we lose a good card to play? And I'd say no, uh, because the more that you look into things, yes, on the surface, can you say that bird was directly caused by God? Um, you could argue that no, not directly. But there are so many other things. The more that you investigate it, I keep thinking of uh, Henri, I think his name was uh, Fab, who, you know, just looking at, when you actually look at what insects do or what look at instinct, 
they all just give you a sense of wonder, of order, of purpose that seems very far-fetched in regards to just chance. Little things, you know, beauty, meaning. So I would say the more you delve into it, uh, if you want a simplistic magic answer and God's the answer to everything, I'm not, I'm not so sad about losing that card. I'm okay with us being more reasonable and filled with more wonder. I know what you're saying, but I think the more you delve into it, the more amazing it is. I remember, I'll never forget the day I realized the sun was a nuclear bomb. I mean, come on. I will not forget the day when it dawned on me, oh. And I was a little kid. I don't remember what, you know, because I'd heard about Hiroshima. I tried to do my best with the World Encyclopedia stuff. And then it dawned on me, the sun is a bomb. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Doctor. Anyone? <laughs>